a world filled with fast-paced living and constant demands on the aging body, it's easy to forget some of the simplest yet most essential elements of our well-being, hydration and nutrients. As you know, when I'm not in the studio recording a podcast or in the gym or out in the scrub hunting, putting rounds downrange, I'm somewhere in the world on a security gig, putting in the hard yards, ending up on TikTok. So legends that get some, keep me advancing forward, Jocko Fuel Supplements. More specifically, I've been smashing the Jocko Hydrate Sachets, which helps me replenish my electrolytes and other critical vitamins while boosting energy and supporting recovery. Also, just like my kids, my appetite for veggies goes as far as hot chips from the kernel. However, every morning I'll mix a scoop of Jocko Greens, Jocko Creatine into water, which helps me supplement my lack of and delivers all the nutrients for better gut health, immune support, cognitive function, and physical performance. And not to mention, tastes bloody good. So head over to www.getsome.com.au and use the code Zero Limits all in caps for a discount. I'll leave you with this for the day. Hard work, clean fuel, stronger, faster, smarter, better. Let's go. You're listening to a Zero Limits podcast brought to you by Two Ravens Tactical and Iron and Lead Cartel. Hosted by Australian veterans, we're here to give you the motivation for you to complete any goal you set your mind to. On these podcasts, we're going to be speaking to high-charging people with the zero-limit mindset that never say no. Let's go. All right, listeners, on uh, today's Zero Limits podcast, we are chatting to a SASR uh, veteran. Um, he, before he became, you know, everything we've read about him so far, and, mm. you know, Peroused on, perused, peroused, perused, peroused on, on the gram, on the gram, and Google, Google his name. Uh, he accounts. was a doctor, and um, he first got a scholarship to uh, become a doctor within the Australian Army, which is cool. Which is cool. And then his brother, his brother was actually in the SAS as a troop commander. Yeah, and obviously his father flew helos. Yeah, his father flew helos in the army, and uh, so Dan went over to the out to the west coast and. Uh, Met up with his brother, and basically that just implanted that seed of yeah he wants to be in the SAS. So he ended up uh, getting over to the SAS, did selection, yeah, uh, past selection. At that stage, he got pulled back to doing to be his a doctor to be a doctor to do you know regular doctor stuff with the Australian Army with yeah. Five R up in uh, Darwin, and then uh, which in turn was a, a bad thing for him because he missed out on. Yeah, missed out and actually doing the full, uh, complete uh, reinforcement cycle yeah. of uh, training for the SAS and kicking the balls. Still got to go back to, or he went to the four hour yeah. uh, now to commando. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, not just being a doctor, you know, on the at the, at the bases. At the bases, he went out as well. He, you know, that's what we, yeah. you know, what we've read so far. So let's um, just get him on and let him tell us the story. Hundred percent. Gentlemen, yeah, that's yeah. Is uh, you got your five G or mate? I reckon what's happened there. I've got three kids at home, and they were all. Oh yeah. I reckon we probably just ran out of bandwidth, so I've turfed them all off their devices. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, we had a we had one of my mates on yesterday from Adelaide as well. He's ex fed uh, fed police, but he's in Adelaide as well, and his reception was terrible as well. I don't know. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. These are a bit weird down there. Yeah, a bit of a (laughs) backwater. All right, um, I guess we'll just start 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 again. Yeah, cool, mate. All right, uh, listeners, on today's Zero Limits podcast, we've got he was a doctor, uh, which he got a scholarship through the Australian Army to become a doctor, which is pretty cool. Yeah. His name is uh, Dr. Dan Pronk. 
and uh, he served four tours to Afghanistan. Yep. And on his second tour, he uh, received commendation for distinguished service. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, for actions uh, during combat and did well uh, well over 100 uh, direct missions. Which so is, we're um, actually speaking to Dr. Dan Pronk, C, uh, DSM MD. Dan? Oh. Uh, not DSM. So the, the DSM was the next gong up from the oh. distinguished. So, yeah, I got a, a commendation for di- distinguished service. but right. uh, yeah. n- it's not, not a precept. But MD still. Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> anyway, we'll let Dan explain <laughs> yeah. everything. And Dan, welcome to the show. Yeah, cheers, gents. Thanks for having me. Thank you. No worries, mate. Well, um, you know, I reached out to you and uh, you got back to me and you know, obviously you got a couple of books out there we'll talk about later and, um, you know, got a well-distinguished career within the Australian Army and obviously post-military uh, life as well with uh, obviously a bit of PTSD. So that's something we can touch on down the track. But let's let's just start right off from the start. Where did you grow up? And, you know, we were, you know, common theme dirtbag of a kid that's generally joins the Army. <laughs> Yeah, in essence, uh, that's that's pretty much the gist of it. I was a army brat myself, so had one older brother and and myself just a couple of years apart, and and we grew up in an army family. So the old man was a a um, army helicopter pilot, and he rose through the ranks to command a aviation regiment, and so we grew up in that environment. We were going to army open days, and and back in the good old days where they were they were good fun. We were up and down in helicopters and planes and shooting blank out of M60s and I, so I have pretty That's fond cool. child. yeah it was it was super cool uh, I think OH&S has gotten the road now and you, you can't do as much of that but the so I had some pretty fond military memories from being a kid my brother was always hell-bent on being a soldier and indeed ended up the commanding officer of the SAS regiment and so he sort of from an early age the writing was on the wall that he wanted to head in that direction I didn't at all the um, you know the the thought of joining the army never occurred to me at all, uh, sort of, you know, albeit seriously until my early 20s. But so, yeah, I sort of grew up, I was just bounced around schools as every army kid does or military kid. So went to, I think, seven or eight different schools in the end, got booted out of one in grade 11. And so didn't have a, wasn't wasn't outstanding at ever, anything really in, in my youth, just kind of got by, kept a pretty low profile, was just average at school, average at sport and, and um, floated through until my final couple of years of high schooling where I, I started to run quite competitively. And I think when I track it back, I was, I was a bit of a fat kid as was my brother. And I think I was trying to throw a bit of weight off to be more appealing to the ladies. I think that's why I got into running the, the um, I'd like to have a more uh, sort of inspiring story, but I think it was just to, to be more anyway, I, I did get into running and, and then a bit of triathlon and showed yep, a bit of yep. promise there. And, and so I finished up my school and, and then started to look towards triathlon as something I might potentially be able to do uh, professionally. So I, I chased that dream for five years down the Gold Coast in Queensland there. Yep. I was plugged into a, a, a training crew there that had, had some, uh, you know, exceptional athletes. They had a, a bunch of blokes that had won the world title and this sort of stuff. So I was, I was training with these really high-level guys and girls and thrashed it for five years. I did some part-time uni, so from age about 18 to 20, 223-ish. I was hell-bent on being a triathlete and it became clear over that period of time that I was not, I just wasn't good enough, plain and simple. I, yeah, right. I was, yeah, I think with hindsight, I was, I was 
uh, mentally weak. I don't think I had the the grit or the you know the resilience, which is something I've become very interested in lately. But uh, I, I think I lacked that with hindsight. But I think that aside, I, I don't think genetically some of the, the blokes that I was training with, and then younger generations coming through as I entered my early twenties, there was a couple of blokes coming through that were just exceptional. They were starting to beat me, and so I mean the the writing was on the wall for me there that that I wasn't going to be the athlete I wanted to be. I'd finished an exercise science degree, so I did that part-time while I was training and uh, did pretty well at that. So that was the first time academics made sense to me. I couldn't yeah. see the relevance of a lot of the crap that they force into your head at school. It just it didn't make, you know, it, it didn't resonate with me, whereas when I was doing my triathlon and studying exercise science, I'm learning all the, the anatomy, the physiology, the biochemistry, the biophysics. We're in the exercise testing labs doing VO2 max testing and, and, and it was it, um, it clicked. You know, it made, it made sense. I enjoyed it. I engaged and I, and I did pretty well in that degree, which allowed me to then do the, the medical uh, school's admission test, so the graduate uh, medical school's admission test to do medicine. And so when the triathlon thing fell over, I, I sort of like, well, you know, what am I going to do now? Um, sat the medical entrance school exam. And that was the first time where I thought maybe I'll join the army. And so I started to look into that as well. My brother by that point was was in. And so he'd gone through ADFA and RMC and was a junior officer with an infantry battalion. And actually by that point, so that was about 2000, I think he'd actually done, yeah, he had, he had done SA selection. He was over at um, the regiment as a troop commander. But I took very little interest in that, to be honest. I had no, I had no uh, sort of military inclination still. Anyway. I found out that the army had a scholarship scheme that would pay your way through med school. And so I got myself into med school. I had no other means of funding it. So I joined the army to to put me through med school and and off I went uh, on my <laughs> military medical career. Yeah, that's uh, like – I was yeah. saying this to Matt the other day. Yeah. How good's the defence force? You can go get trained whether you're going to be a sailor, soldier, airman or officer, especially the officers. You go through Adford and they will pay for like your school plus pay your wage and yeah. everything's free. And you, it's, it's a great scheme. scheme. Yeah, it is yeah. awesome. Oh, for sure. I think for the right person. And I mean, the, it, obviously, you know, n- nothing comes for free. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, there's, there was some fine print in the contract that I didn't read initially. That's all I saw. <laughs> hey, free money. I'm in. But um, yeah, there was something in the fine print about having to serve for a big chunk of your life uh, wherever they sent you. But um, yeah, look, for me, it was fantastic. It was it was just brilliant. And it opened a door that otherwise uh, wouldn't have been open to me. Yeah. So what, what year was that? What year did you start? The scholarship. So I kicked off med school in two thousand and one. So, yeah, right. Yeah. So I joined joined the army to do medicine was how it worked out in the end. So uh, start of 01, I was uh, Lieutenant Dan Pronk, full-time med student. So, I mean, you, you kind of toddle off to uni and you, there was no military commitment. I was full-time army and I was paid by them and, and all the rest of it. But they basically said, go get your degree, do a couple of years as a junior doctor, and then you you throw a uniform on and you, you yeah, go right. to a unit. Hey, that is cool, though. Yeah. It's awesome. so, oh, so yep. Okay, gotcha. So you just do. Uh, you're being a civilian, but you're getting paid yeah. the government wage. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you do med school like any other student. You get yourself in like anyone yeah. else, and you go and do uni like anyone else. It's not in Australia. The the military doesn't have like with some of the university programs that are run through the Defence Force Academy. Uh, you know, it's it's not a big enough. Uh, 
dependency to have a medical school of their own. So it's not a military medical school. You just go do medicine like any other doc and then do an internship as a junior doctor like any other doc. You need that to become fully qualified as a doc. And then you do one further year in a civilian hospital to just get a bit more experience before you go into the military system. So you sign on. For me, I did the post-grad four-year course of medicine and then another two years. So I signed on the dotted line in 01, but didn't chuck a uniform on until 2007. Yeah, of course. Awesome. And then obviously in 2001, September 11, you know, happens. Yes. You know, yep. do you remember where you were and what your thoughts were? Obviously, you yeah. were going to be essentially going to be, you know, joining the military. You're in the military, but, yeah. you, you know, yeah. put a uniform on. So, you know, what were your, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I remember that vividly, as I think most most do, who were, you know, of adult age at that time. And, and I was at med school at the time, so the year was, was wrapping up. Actually, I think not long prior to that had been the – Oh, geez, I'd have to check my dates. It was either the Tampa or the Pong, Pong Su, maybe. Um, but there, there was some other events around there that basically piqued my interest uh, just for the simple fact that my brother was with SASR at the yeah. moment. I'm just Googling where Pong, Pong Su was. Uh, but anyway, I'd, I'd sort of say, uh, no, that was that was 03, so it must have been the Tampa. But um, the... I, I watched the, the Twin Towers fall, you know, glued to my TV. I was coming and going from med school around that period. But still at that stage, it hadn't really, the penny didn't drop that this would be a fundamental event in my life. Um, but what did, what, what really was a, a pivotal moment was that that was, of course, the catalyst to, for everyone to roll into Afghanistan. And my brother was at SASR as a troop commander and he started to gear up to go with one of the early Australian pushes to Afghanistan and so at the end of that year when I had when I had uni holidays I went to visit him and to basically to hang out with him say goodbye before he deployed yeah and it was during that visit that I met a bunch of his troop and uh, including a bloke called Keith Fennell, who's who's been in the the public eye. He's written a couple of books, uh, Warrior Brothers yeah, yeah, and yep. Warrior. And so I met Fenno on that trip. A couple of other guys went out to the base a couple of times and had a bit of a look, saw what went on, and and that was the the light bulb moment. It was when I was there talking with Fenno and another uh, operator that 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 they basically seeded the idea in my head. They said, hey, you know, you should do selection and come across the unit. I'm like, well, no, I'm, I've signed up to be a doc. And they're like, well, that's, that's what we're saying. We've got a doc at the unit, come across as the, the doc. And I'm like, holy shit, this is my new purpose in life. And yeah, so wow. that, that was that changed everything. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. That, that is, yeah. yeah. So you spend, so how long is your medical training? Is it is that seven years or eight years? Nine seven years. Seven seven years. years. It depends how you do it. So if you go straight out of school and do what, what's called undergraduate medicine, I think it's six years and then an internship. I did the postgraduate course. So if you've already got a degree, you can sit a, an admission test. Uh, I sat a thing called the GAMSAT, the, the Graduate Australian mm-hmm. Medical School Admission Test or something. And if you if you score a, an appropriate score on this, then you can get into medicine. And as a second degree, it's four years. So in effect, you do at least seven years. You do a three grad, three year undergrad, and then four years of med school. Gotcha. Uh, so yeah, it's about a, a six seven year pipeline, depending how you go about it. 
Okay, so w- what year did you first get your? Oh seven. So I did 07, my medical yeah. postgrad from oh uh, one to oh four. So December oh four, I became a doctor. But you you need to do a year of of internship. So you get this conditional registration. You're like a, a baby doctor that needs yeah, uh, so a lot of supervision and a, and a guidance and and so internship was oh five for me, and then I did one further year as per the military scholarship in 06 at a civilian hospital. And then 2007, I posted into Darwin. So I went up to uh, one uh, CISBE. So for yeah. your first year in uniform, you, you, you're you not deployable until you've done a, a full suite of courses. So you, you, you're a doctor and you've got some experience, but you need to learn to adapt that to the military world. Yeah. Okay. And so you head off to Duntroon, you do a, a thing called a specialist service officer course, SSO course, which is a really abbreviated, watered down officer training, just basically, you know, teaching you how to march and salute a little bit enough so that you don't look like a complete goose on your <laughs> uniform, know who to say sir to and ma'am to and not and, and that sort of stuff. And, yeah. and a very basic sort of weapons training, navigation training, learning a little bit of living in the field. And and then you do a, a thing called an RMO intro course, regimental mental, uh, medical officer intro course. You do aeromedical evacuation course and um, a thing called early management of severe trauma, which is, yep. as it sounds, just dealing with trauma in the pre-hospital space. And, and so this suite of courses at the end of which they say, right, you are now deployable as a um, as a regimental medical officer. Yeah, right. So how cool is that? How, like, how did you pretty shitty at school, and then you got out a degree in? What let's was, let's what? not forget you got kicked out of year eleven. Yeah, kicked out. <laughs> Actually, what did you get kicked out for? Let's get back to that one. Uh, yeah, the, the, it was a variety of things. It was, <laughs> there was a lot of straws that broke that camel's back. I, I think the, 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 the final catalyst. Well, to set the context, I'd, I'd bounced around a lot of schools. Uh, I, I had to repeat grade eight. I'd missed grade four or five or yeah, something. Right. It was a pretty, um, it was a pretty sort of um, disjointed schooling. <laughs> and I'd ended up at this this all boys private school, and yeah, I was just a fish out of water. I didn't fit that mould. I'd, I'd spent the the first time I did grade eight. I was at this public, like a state school in Brisbane. It was, with hindsight, pretty rough. You know, I'd started high school when I was 11 because my, my age had been, yep, uh, like yep. the grades didn't quite line up between New South Wales and Queensland. Anyway, started quite young, had a pretty bad influence <laughs> with hindsight that I had a lot of fun with but just did a lot of dumb stuff. So I had to re- repeat grade eight <laughs> and we'd moved to to, to, the, to Woomba and so I went to this all-boys uh, school. And my parents, God bless them, were clearly throwing a lot of money at our education with 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 hindsight they were obviously you know making sacrifices so ben my brother and i could go to these private schools and i just didn't fit in no you know i'd I'd, yeah. I'd long hair and an earring I'd, i liked spray painting trains and, and embarrassingly I, I liked rollerblading a little too much <laughs> and skateboarding and, and so i was sort of you know, I was into that kind of. I was the little guy yeah. with the baggy pants on and the hat backwards. Loved my gangster rap. I was that guy. That's hectic. And I found myself at, at this school that that was a fairly elite school in the rugby space and and very academic. I was very artistic and um, annoying. Yeah. <laughs> with hindsight, so uh, yeah, I just didn't fit in, and so there was a there was a bunch of friction there. Yeah. I, I was you know I was a shit of a kid, and I exacerbated the situation and. 
used to wag school all the time. And I think the straw that broke the camel's back was I, I had my hair a bit longer than they liked and, and you know, they're saying get a haircut, get a haircut, don't come back to school till you get a haircut. So I didn't. I just wagged school for a couple of weeks and they, they phoned <laughs> my parents and I'd been, you know, getting dressed in my school uniform and going to the bus stop and then just not going to a mate's house. And That's so cool. my parents didn't know. <laughs> so they get this call, where's Dan? <laughs> you know, oh, he's at school. No, he ain't at school. And, and then they said, you know, get your hair cut to come back to school. Got my hair cut, went back to school. They said, it's not short enough. And so I, I just shaved it, blade one, and went back to school. And they're like, we got to talk. <laughs> <laughs> It was yeah, right. Too long. So, so, you know, with that sort of stuff, you know, there's nothing. There, there would have been so many teachers that are looking at you and saying, you'll never get nowhere in life. Yeah. You'll, you'll be nothing. Oh, and, yeah. you know, then you become a doctor. Like, there's, yeah, there's, exactly. There's yeah. Like the total polar opposite. Were you, I mean, you, I think that's a, that's a great point. And I think yeah. we tend to judge as a society. We look at particularly young people and think, oh, geez, there are no hoper. And and uh, if I have the chance to engage with school kids, I, I use it as a bit of a sort yeah. of, you know, don't worry if you haven't quite found your niche yet. Don't get too disheartened. And I think for all of us, it's, it's the, the schooling particularly is a cookie cutter mold. We say, here's what you must learn. Here's the grades. If you're here, then you are an A student and you're great. If you're here, then, you know, you, you, you're a failure. And it's, it's just, it's just, if it's people fitting into different niches and it took me a while to find mine, but yeah, it's, um, you know, we do it. We judge as a society, don't we? Which is. Yeah, we uh, certainly uh, do. Yeah. Group. We certainly do. And, uh, so what year did you um, – so you got posted one Sisby up in Darwin. Uh, yep. From there, how long were you up there for? So two years in the end. Yep. So I, I sort of had my plan all mapped out. Like since 01, end of 01, I I thought, yep, want to be the doc with the SAS regiment. And and I had plenty of time to, to kill. Actually, I got in touch with the Special Forces Training Centre. I think it's called something else now. But the crew that organised selection, I think three or four times throughout my med schooling saying, hey, can I come do selection? <laughs> and they're like, yeah. Appreciate the enthusiasm, but no, mate, no, you can't. And, and so I, I sort of harassed them periodically. But the uh, and I had my plan to to go to Sydney. I wanted to go to three RAR as or one one health support battalion as my first posting. Then yep. three RAR, then then you know four RAR, then SASR. So I had it all mapped out and had been telling my career advisors every year this is what I want to do, and they're like, yeah, 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 no, nah, good, good. And it was sort of in my mind all set in stone that that was what was going to happen. And then I get this posting order to one Sisby Darwin just out, <laughs> out the blue and I was furious. But um, anyway, went up there. It was a great, great couple of years. Did my first year, became deployable. As soon as I was deployable, I asked to get detached to 5RAR, so 5th Battalion up there. Yep. And, and then I posted to five in 2008. So I, I did my, all my compulsory training, then spent a bit of time with them in 07, and, uh, so yeah, end of 07, and then formally posted to 5RAR in 08. Yep. And that was the year that, that I went and did selection. And, um, and then at the end of that year, I moved out of Darwin. Yeah, right. So you do selection and uh, how'd, you, how'd you find it? No, Look, being, being, I mean, sorry, just to cut it, like being, no. a, being a doctor too, like it's not your normal. Not your normal. You know, it's not your normal role. grunt that's just jumping across and, you know, doing selection. Yeah. It's, it's a doctor. But at the start, you say when you were doing triathlon, you didn't have the mental uh, capacity yeah. or the grit. Yeah. And here you are probably trying out for one of like, the hardest selections throughout the yeah, no, I'd grown up a lot. I mean, there, there was a, a lot of water under the bridge in between when I finished up with triathlon. So I'd, I'd finished that 
at age 23 and then gone done a medical degree a couple of years junior doctoring and and then I did selection age 31 so you know there was a there was a lot of growing up that went on in that yeah, period course, yeah. and and I think a big part of my motivation to go and do selection, I didn't need to, to to be a part of special operations, but I wanted to. I think it was me personally trying to uh, make up for what I perceived as a failure uh, in my triathlon aspirations. So it was this physical challenge. It was this Everest to try and climb. And if nothing else, it was a great motivator to train towards it, to keep physically fit and have a goal. And then, you know, best case scenario, I'd I'd go and be successful and and get through. And thankfully that was how it played out. Being 31 and going for selection, were you one of the eldest there? One of the oldest, should I say? Uh, I was probably probably older than the average, but certainly not the oldest. There was a 36-year-old on our course, officer, reservist, who was outstanding. He he just smashed the course and but um yeah I, I suspect the average age probably mid to late 20s yeah uh, there was a couple couple of much younger guys but yeah i was probably older than the average but not not the oldest without going into too much detail what was your most favorite part of the course Oh, happy wanderer! So the the, the five day individual navigation exercise, which which comes into it about so the the whole course about three weeks long. I think ours was twenty one days on the on the nose, and um, so you do the the last five days is is just uh, you know it's hard to put it into words. It's it's hell. Yeah. Uh, so that's the, the the lucky dip component, which is a near complete food and sleep deprivation exercise. Uh, you do sleep for an hour or two or half an hour here and there every other day, but it's it's basically you know complete sleep dip and <laughs> and there's very little food. Uh, you know, you, you you get fed one meal, which is this unpalatable meal on day three, and you and you eat it because you're starving to death. But it's it's horrendous. But um, and then you just have to lug heavy weights all day, every day from dawn till dusk, and then the night activity is just designed to keep you awake and test you. You know your your mental resilience to do yeah. menial tasks, but so I mean that was hellish. That's the last five days, but the preceding five days from that, so from about day twelve to seventeen ish for us, is this uh, happy wanderer. And so we went down to the Stirling Ranges in the south of Western yeah. Australia. Absolutely stunning countryside, and it's it's an individual navex. So they drop you off and. It's an amazing logistical effort. You know, they've got at that point of the course, I reckon we probably still had 50 or 60 people. We started with about 160. So there's a lot of people and they set you off on all these different pathways around this this, uh, national park so that you, you very rarely bump into anyone else. So you're there by yourself. No one's yelling at you. You got your pack on your back with five days worth of rations. There's water stashed around the place and you just stomp just get up in the morning and stop. There's no move after dark or dawn, or there wasn't on our course. So you get a full night's sleep, uh, you know, for the first time in in over two weeks, you, you're actually able to sleep. You get a full rat pack a day, which I had never before in my life eaten everything in a ration <laughs> pack. <laughs> but I was sucking all the Vegemite out of the tubes and, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, eating every last thing. It's, it wasn't picking and choosing. It was, you, you know, your body's wasting away and you're losing lots of weight and you need the calories. And, yeah. and uh, but yeah, so for me, that that five days was just magic, just in my own head, setting my own pace, stomping away up and down these amazing mountains, beautiful sunrises and sunsets. And and the, you'd see the DS, you know, you'd check in with them at, at checkpoints, but they weren't 
they weren't like in the other components of the course where you, you're getting ripped into and you're getting, you know, beasted and yelled at and told yeah. shit and all that sort of stuff, uh, how they used to run selection courses. It was very civil. It's check in, you know, and radio in, get your new checkpoint and bug out. So, yeah, that for me, that was the, that was the best part. Yeah, cool. Hell yeah, that sounds cool. And so you finished selection, uh, that was 2008? Correct, yeah, mid-08, mid yeah. yeah. And then uh, what's the next step after that? Yeah, it got a bit convoluted here. So the so – Finished and and then at the end of the course we we had to wait till the next day to find out if we'd gotten through or not. Uh, next day called into the CEO's office as an officer and 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 he's like you know well done you you've been uh, selected suitable for for ongoing training with the unit. I'm like great you know and and I I sort of fit into a weird period in the the selection process in that they used to have a thing called a category B selection where you could be support staff like a doctor, go and do selection, do an abbreviated reinforcement cycle, become qualified to to wear the beret, but it was understood you'd stay in your trade. Yep. So it was was the just the ability for support supporting roles to challenge themselves and and wear the same hat as the operators, uh, but with the knowledge that they weren't operators and and the that all sort of around the time I did selection was was they were looking at it for a variety of reasons. There was pay issues with it. There was sort of people overstepping the mark in terms of wearing the hat but, and representing something they weren't perhaps. So here's the impression I got. Anyway, so when I applied for selection, I ticked Cat B. When I actually finished selection, it was the first time that I was told there's no Cat B anymore. You will be put in with the other officers to compete for troop command. Yeah, and I'm right. like, oh, Right, so okay, uh, what does that look like? I mean, I've just finished my med schooling, and, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and and then there was this this. So my return of service as a doctor specified I needed to stay in trade, so I needed to stay as a doctor, which makes sense. I mean, they've just dropped however many hundreds of thousands of dollars getting me qualified. The the thought of of then jumping across to be to do a grunt SF role. Yep. Um, so there was that issue going on in the background. Superimposed on all of this was. 5RAR was going to Timor at the end of that year and my commanding officer from 5 at the time, he, like, God bless him, magnificent man, he, he had signed off saying, yeah, you can go do selection, but if I can't replace you for the deployment, I'm going to have to pull you back off your reinforcement cycle to deploy. Oh. And and that was what happened. So yeah, I, right. um, I, I sort of started the process post-selection of, of getting getting all that admin done. And everyone's pretty banged up after selection. I actually ended up with a nasty infection in my leg that needed surgery to drain wow. pus out of my knee. And Jesus. so, yeah, it was a, it was a, a really hectic time. So... Uh, long story short here, it's probably too late for that, but I'll cut it, <laughs> cut it as short as I can now. Bounce back to Darwin uh, to deploy with 5RAR to Timor. I um, my, my knee didn't settle, so I had to rip into hospital, got a bunch of pus and cheese cut out of my knee, stuck in hospital for eight days, had this thing called a pick line stuck in, so this, this indwelling drip that mm-hmm. pretty much goes straight into your heart. And they let me out of hospital, but I had this antibiotic pump plugged onto me for weeks and just had to carry a bottle of antibiotics around and changed every 24 hours but um ended up getting better got signed off went to timor and it was meant to be an eight-month trip but the the socom cogs had sort of started to churn and they needed a doctor for four rar the next year so my eight-month trip to timor and my two-year posting to five rar all got cut down i did four months in timor bailed out halfway through moved to sydney posted into 
for RAR that became two commando yep, regiment yep. that year in 2009 and um, and then deployed ended up going straight on uh, basically tag east with them and then deploying with them in in that year on my first rotation to Afghanistan uh, so it sort of you know it was all this really convoluted pathway and did two years with the second commando regiment or and then two yep uh, before I got back to Perth and in 2010 yeah right so you do two depl- two deployments to Afghanistan uh, two commando. Uh, I did. Let me think. No, I did. So I did 09. I went with them, and okay, then yeah. I, I stayed in Sydney for 2010. So um, I, I was sort of the, the the idea was I'd go into this holding pattern to then try and plug into reinforcement cycle in Perth. Yeah, but uh, yeah. it just didn't play out that way. So I, I deployed in 09. So I missed the opportunity to go to Rio that year, and then 2010. I was I was at Second Commando Regiment. As one of two doctors, the other doctor had deployed, and so I'm, I'm the one doc there, which was the senior doctor's role. And so when Rio sort of rolled around, it was like, well, hang on, this we need this guy here to do a job, you know. <laughs> and, and so I couldn't, I couldn't get back across to Perth, which was fine, you know. Two was a fantastic unit to be a part of, and and then the intent was, well, I'll, I'll, I'm heading back to Perth after that in 2010 anyway. I'll plug into Rio that year and 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 pretty much same story by the time um oh sorry no that was 2010 2011 went to Perth but then deployed again and was away most of that year and and then 2012 deployed again and so I mean it, it just it, it never it never happened that I got back on a, a a Rio and it was for a couple of reasons but the main one being I was the doc they didn't need me very qualified. I wasn't going to add any value to the unit. Yeah. Uh, and it would have just taken me away from the job that I was posted to the unit to do. So from a, I, I saw it, 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 it really, when I found out that I wasn't going to be able to achieve that dream, I was, I was devastated for a short period of time, but I mean, it, it makes, it, it makes perfect sense to me that the, the leadership, why would they send their doc off to do, you know, six, 12 months of training when they need the doc there and it's not going to, add any value yeah. to the unit. So so yeah, never never got the hat. Yeah, right. So you, it's, a bit, it's a bit sad. Yeah. It is what it is. Yeah, exactly. I thought I look back on this pretty philosophically and at the time at the time I was devastated. I, I yeah, got called into be. the boss's office when I got back to Perth, maybe uh, initially the intent was still to get me qualified and, and then that all changed and I got called in at one point he said, you know, this whole qualified thing, never going to happen. Are there any questions? I'm like, no, no, sir. And and I was de- I was devastated. I really was. But I look back now, and I think the well, I think uh, I look at it from a couple of different perspectives. One is without that that dream and that aspiration to become a beret qualified doctor with SASR, I I wouldn't have had the same motivation to push to be there. You know, yeah. so I, the the I needed that sort of you know, Everest to climb, if you like, to motivate me for six or seven years to train towards selection. But when I look back now, I think that it didn't matter what what colour my hat was. It would have been nice to tick that box, but it made absolutely no difference to the experience that I had as a doctor with special operations. And I can I can see now, you know, years after the fact that it, it it's really pretty trivial to me in terms of my bigger picture what color hat I wore and and to be honest I you know I was, I'm a super proud former member of medical corps so you know that, that that is my and that was my tribe within special operations it wasn't the operators I mean it was it was a privilege to be associated but my tribe were, were the medics yeah. you know and so yeah yeah so 
But you still, like when your deployments, when you deployed to Afghanistan with the SSR, you were not just a doctor on the FOB, you were a doctor out in the, out the, out in the field. field, which is, and you weren't, you know, a full qualified operator, which is mental. So how did, Well, how, and, and more, uh, you're exactly right. And I, I guess the, I wasn't, I was deployed to Afghanistan with the Special Operations Task Group. So it wasn't just the SAS Regiment. Yeah. Um, you know, there was the SAS 2 Commando. Course, there was yeah, the Special yeah. Operations Engineers and, and all the supporting elements. And and when you look at any given uh, mission that we were on, there was, of course, your, uh, you know, your operators, be it Second Commando guys and, or uh, SAS Regiment guys. But then there's a bunch of other specialists that, that do go out and about that, that are non-qualified. So, I mean, you, you need a decent degree of, of tactical sort of proficiency so you're not a liability. But, you, yeah, you don't need everyone to have that same level of yeah, tactical skill. Yeah. yeah, it's it's enough to be able to conduct yourself appropriately, to be able to, you know, point your rifle in the same direction as everyone else when the fighting starts <laughs> and, and not put around through one of your buddies or uh, get shot yourself. So, I mean... Yeah, it, um, it it was it was me and a whole bunch of other people that that would be uh, these these sort of specialist enablers, if you like, in the in the field. Yeah, right. So, uh, can you run us through your first, uh, I guess, hostile uh, incident? Um, you know, first tick. Yeah, there was the. I mean, we we got in a gunfight my very first mission outside the wire, but it was a bit it was a bit uneventful. There was, you know, there was often fleeting gunfights, and this is two thousand and nine. And the but the first real real proper gunfight, the first time I got shot at really accurately and intentionally. You know, not just being somewhere in the grid square and a bullet snaps over, but the the first time that was it was on it was late in my first tour, and we we were doing a mission down into Helmand. The um, the, the, there'd been a, a coalition element that had had a helicopter shot down. They'd lost some sensitive items and our task group got the task of, of going to recover them. And so that was the mission. And and it turned into a, a, a really full-blown gunfight when the, the crew were clearing this village. And, and I was with the tactical headquarters element, so I didn't have any role in the actual village clearance. We were in a uh, slightly... Uh, well, up the hill from the village that was being cleared, probably a couple hundred metres away in a bit of an overwatch position, but which was getting targeted throughout the day. But, yeah, so that was my first exposure to to proper combat, you know, a, a complete day of, of um, helicopter gunships overhead, predators and reapers and drones yep, yep. dropping lots yeah, of wow. shoulder-fired uh, sort of uh, anti-armour weapons. How were, the emo- gun how were the emotions? Oh, mate, I was high as a kite. I loved it. <laughs> I, yeah, I was giggling like a schoolgirl and laughing and buzzing. And, yeah, it was – I guess you never really know how you're going to go in that situation. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I was I was wandering around in this little compound at, at the, the time when I first got sort of shot at accurately and a, a round cracked over my head and missed me by bugger all and just smashed into this mud brick wall next to me and <laughs> I hit the deck and, and my initial instinct was just to piss myself laughing. I, I just, you know, there was, no, there was no fear, there was no malice. It was just like, oh, shit, that's uh, <laughs> that was close. Yeah. But uh, so, I mean, yeah, it was, and I don't know if some of that was just naivety. Uh, some of that might have been, uh, you know, overwhelm my response in, in stressful situations is often t- to laugh, often inappropriately. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I legitimately uh, really enjoyed the complexity of those combat environments and, and the stimulation of it all I just found 
you know, well addictive, to be honest. I just absolutely loved it. Yeah, of course. And obviously, you know, being a doctor, you know, um, I'm sure you'd practice your uh, medicine over there, you know, on numerous occasions, especially being Afghanistan, there would have been some trauma, you know, you you just can't experience here in Australia or, you know, in a domestic scene. So did you work on, do plenty of, plenty of, you know, medicine over there? Yeah, it was, it was nonstop, you know, the stream of trauma that was particularly coming through places like the, the U.S. Special Operations Detachment on um, the multi multinational base there at Tarancot. They had a thing called the Ford Surgical Team, which was yeah. a really rudimentary um, surgical capability that did wound stabilisation, blast, gunshot wound, just the down and dirty minimum surgical interventions to preserve life and then then they'd, they'd uh, chop them off to a higher level of care to do the, the finesse surgery. But, yeah, so when we weren't out on missions, we would, we would hang out there and day in, day out, they they had, I don't know if it was the busiest trauma centre, it was certainly one of the busiest trauma centres in Afghanistan. So it was this constant stream of, of mostly blast and gunshot wound, high-velocity gunshot wound trauma coming through. And, and they were just fantastic people. Every time we were there, it was either a SEAL team or an ODA that would be manning that base. And, and then these forward surgical elements were just so accommodating. You know, they'd, they'd let us get in, do all the... The resuscitation piece and then do the anesthetics if we wanted to scrub in and assist with surgery so it was this from a medical perspective while it was you know it was horrendous what was happening to people and often local national you know, women and kids and uh, so it was it was very sad from that perspective but from a professional medical perspective it was just this unbelievable experience that you cannot get in australia and and just belt fed day in day out just on high rotation uh, which was from a medical skill set perspective allowed you to hone these skills in a really quick fashion Uh, with hindsight from a kind of trauma load perspective it was it was adding up. I didn't realise that till many years later. But um, yeah, very unique and very professionally satisfying. And then there was the opportunity to go out on the aeromedical evacuation helicopter, so the dust off birds. Yep. Uh, we had a relationship with them where we'd go and do twenty four hour shifts with dust off and launch with them to pick up casualties from the field. And then, wow. of course, the the trauma that we encountered when we were out on our own missions. Wow. That's yeah. We 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 had a, a PJ on, and he's told us a lot of stories. You know, obviously, especially oh, he did speak about SAS doctor. So I'm just wondering if it, if it, it ties was, in with you somehow. It? Maybe yeah, he did speak of an SAS yeah. doctor, Mike Maroney. His name, a little little sur- surfer rat, a little South, yeah. South Cali, South Cali. Yeah. PJ, yeah, gotcha. I'm trying to think. We certainly had some some good relationships with the PJs and and lots of interaction. Albeit yeah. they, they were never based out of TK, uh, but we, you know, lots of respect for for PJs with a fantastic yeah. capability and and um, yeah, really, you know, we 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 got a, a lot of support from the PJs in the field as well and. So yeah, wonderful, wonderful they're, human beings. They're literally in like an angel. They just jump out, they come down, save the day, shoot in the face, whatever, and just go back. You know, it's yeah. like oh, grab who shit. they need to grab. Yeah. So you know, build a you know somewhat of a rep- reputation of being you know the doctor. You know, the, the SAS doctor. You know, yeah, the the Doogie Howser MD type thing. You know, in Afghanistan, where you were the go to. <laughs> so, in a way, you know, it would it, it would have given the guys a bit more confidence. You know, especially when you're out in the field with them, they'd be like, "Oh, the doc's here. He's a hit. Let's get into it. He'll save our lives anyway." I, so, I don't think we mentioned, but you also got a bachelor in surgery as well. So well, the. the- the, the qualification I did was called a Bachelor of Medicine, Bachelor of Surgery. Yeah. yeah, so it's not 
not to be mistaken for a like a surgeon. It, that does not make you a surgeon, but okay. it just recognises that as part of your training, you do surgical rotations. Okay, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, okay. Yep. Yeah. yeah, look, I mean, it, it was a it was a really privileged position to be in, and I, I think the the other thing that I you know I think is important to mention is I, I wasn't the first guy to do this sort of stuff as a doctor, and I certainly wasn't the last guy. I'm just the guy who makes the most noise about it, <laughs> and so it's it's um you know there was these trailblazing doctors that came before me some of whom did selection as well and and uh, you know were qualified with uh, in the old cat b scheme with sasr and the second commando regiment uh, you know there there is a, a quite a, a long list of blokes that came before me and and i was just lucky to come into that system at a time where Particularly, one bloke who who mentored me through my junior years had been with the the second uh, sorry with the SAS regiment, and he was the bloke that that really led the charge on the dock going outside the wire. Yeah, gotcha. And yeah, and so he's, he's still a good good mate of mine today. And and like I said, I mean, you know what. I just make more noise than these other people, but there's 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 others out there that have yeah, of course, have yeah, done yeah, definitely everything I've done and more. But you know, so so the the climate was set within the special operations task group that that it wasn't a foreign concept for the doctor to be outside the wire. I'd been able to get on the selection course and get myself through it, which which got me a, a, a degree of credibility in that environment. It's like you know, people would say, well, you know, this guy obviously. Is keen, and that was the intent. I was very lucky that my brother had had also forged the path in special operations, and and so a lot of the people I was interacting with knew my brother, and um, and and you know he was a, a shit. I hope doubt he'd listen to this anyway, and I'd never say it. But, <laughs> but he, he was a high, highly respected. It's it's funny because to me he's just my dickhead brother, but yeah. but the feedback that I get through military circles, he was a, a highly respected officer in in the um, in the special operations environment. So that that I think helped. As well, you know that I was I was Ben's kid brother, and and so I think all these factors gave me a foot in the door, and then I, I was I was very keen to project forward, and so you know I was enthusiastic. I kept myself fit. I made sure my my medical skill set was where it needed to be, and and built my military skill set. So I think all these factors just created this perfect environment at a time when special operations was on high rotation in Afghanistan and we were taking casualties that just all added up to the, the almost an assumption that the dock was a, a field deployable asset. Uh, and, yeah, I just had the opportunity to go back multiple times. On that second tour, just quickly, the accommodation of distinguished service for conduct in action. Can you touch on that? Yeah, I, I don't – I mean, that's that, that award, I don't know what the – what specific event that got – written up for to be honest um and i think with those sort of awards they're, they're sometimes not not for one event as just such it's for yep. just yeah a, a um a, a period of time but but that's rotation so that was 2011 and and that was a that was a real pivotal that was a turning point for me professionally and and uh, personally because that was that we hadn't lost anyone on our first tour which with hindsight was pretty rare for a special operations task group to get in and out of Afghanistan without having anyone killed and we had a bloke or two shot from memory but nothing bad there was lots of near misses and it was almost sort of reinforced this this um this illusion of invulnerability you know it was kind of like well you know we can't can't be killed and yeah bullets won't hit our guys and so I sort of came out of that just naively I think wanting more, wanting to get back with this 
thinking won't happen to us. And and then on that second tour, we lost three blokes in pretty quick succession. Uh, so we we lost um, we, we lost Brett Wood on one of yeah. our missions, and he was one of seven casualties on that mission, which was a two day job. So we had other guys. Uh, blown up in the same blast that that um, that Brett was was injured in. Uh, we had a, a bloke hit by a rocket fragment, a couple of blokes hit by a grenade shrapnel, and so we started to accumulate these casualties and and then lost Brett on the second day of that uh, mission, and and then we we lost Ryan Robinson, one of our engineers. We yeah. lost Todd Langley and had a, another bloke um, who's in the public space, Heath Jamison, shot through the neck and wounded quite badly, and 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 then there was a, a range of other incidents involving partner force and stuff so it was this this just kind of for me in your face period of time that that was just like hang on a sec this we're playing for keeps here and if blokes of that caliber can get killed then then you know it's i'm i'm in trouble you know it's sort (laughs) of it's it it can happen to me and so i think to come back to your question i was in the field when uh, brett and rowan and todd uh, were were killed and had responded to them. And, and so I think that was the period of time okay. that that uh, gong was written up for. Yeah, right. Well done. Just excuse my ignorance for a sec then, Dan. When something right. significant like that happens, um, does the mission get cancelled or they fly more guys out to like fill those um, positions or do they just ca- carry on with the mission? No, it's it's um, you know the the and that's a, it's a good question and it's an interesting one and this is a real point of difference with a say a civilian trauma or these sort of things but but obviously you just can't stop what you're doing and and generally if someone has been critically injured or killed in the field there's a a a, a combat scenario going on you know there's it, it's quite a dynamic environment and and that was the case in all three of those yeah. instances with um Brett Todd and Rowan where you the mission's ongoing and and you know the mission takes primacy is the reality of it and and so it's as as horrid as it sounds the a, a combat casualty or a fatality almost becomes a logistical challenge to try and complete the mission and and then withdraw with your with your bloke with all his mission essential items you know there's a yeah. there's a checklist of things that, that still has to happen you can't just down tools and and stop fighting because you've lost a bloke it's it's you've got to you've got to fight through and try and complete your mission and then you know get that get that bloke back and and uh, try and minimize the chance of other casualties so it and which as callous as it sounds uh, I found remarkably easy in the moment to do uh, to to be able to defer any of that emotional response, and it was it was necessary, you know. And, and in a way, the ongoing mission and all that that uh, stuff that's required after a fatality is a good distraction. You, you, you don't have any time to stop and think. It's just like right, okay. You know, this our resuscitation ends here because this person is uh, is no longer with us. Yeah. But this new thing starts, and that's the let's let's make sure we've got all his MEIs. Where's his night vision? Where's his weapon? Secure this. Grab his helmet. Where's his GPS? Wrap the body so no one has to see. Where's our stretcher? Who's going to carry him? How do we fall back safely? You know, this sort yeah. of stuff. Who else is injured? Where's the AME bird? Where's our HLZ? So there's there's a bunch of stuff that still needs to happen uh, and it just so the, the the casualty sort of just complicates your overarching tactical context yeah right okay it's just crazy. Yeah, it is. Just crazy. Yeah, it's a bit heavy. I mean, but the, I think that the thing there, 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 of course, is an emotional component that needs to be processed, and that was something I was terrible at doing because it was too easy just to 
keep ploughing forward, to stay busy, to keep myself occupied, to not process, to not sit around and think. It was a a good environment to distract you from the harsh reality of, of what had happened. And so I think that's a major contributor why everything caught up and kicked me in the ass many years later was because I never, well, I didn't think I needed to, but I certainly never did any of the work to make sense of any of that along the way. Okay. Did you, um, did you ever work with your brother? No, 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 this is, uh, so despite the fact that for, I, I ended up spending five years with special operations, he was with special operations that entire five years, and we never once worked together. And I only actually saw him one time in, in uh, outside of, you know, social family catch-ups. In the work context, I saw him once. That's crazy. And that was on SAS selection when <laughs> we'd, been, we'd been allowed to sleep. It was sometime in the first couple of weeks, the barracks phase we were at Bindoon. And so we were, they were like, right, get some sleep. And and I, I needed a leak. And so I'd, I'd raced out of our accommodation. I was ripping across this courtyard. It was at night and uh, to a set of portaloos. And Ben just happened to be walking across there because they'd made great effort to, to separate us. Like he wasn't ever my DS. They didn't want us to interact. And I didn't even know he was there to be honest, until I saw him. And so I'm running one way to take a piss. He's just walking in the other direction, having done whatever he was doing. He was DSing on the course. And and we just caught eyes and that was it. Not a word was said. I went one way, he went the other way. And that is the only time wow. I saw him professionally in that entire five-year period. Yeah, uh, so we never crossed paths. He when, when I was at SASR, he was... Uh, he might have been at Special Operations Headquarters or with a, with a, a different... Um, special operations element that he was in with it. Yeah, so I never crossed paths with him. Yeah, it is, it is. Uh, Looking through your Instagram and, you know, throughout social media and even if you Google your name, the infamous, I wouldn't say infamous, the famous photo of uh, you, a mohawk. Does this this come back to you and your school days, like having rebellious haircuts? And the goatee. And did they tell you to get a haircut? (laughs) Yes, yeah, um, I'm not sure if that harks back to the school days. Maybe on some subliminal level, yeah, yeah, some like some psychologist had picked that apart for you. And, and uh, <laughs> but yeah, that was so. That was that uh, towards the end of that second tour of Afghanistan. It was after all that the, those events that I just spoke to, and and a couple of others. There was a, a big. Um, uh, yeah, a couple of other sort of key events involving things like partner force and, and whatever else. And um, and I, I I was pretty wound up. Like I was wound really tight at that point. I wasn't sleeping great. I was, you know, chewing hydroxy cut was, was a contest. And, and so, you know, with hindsight, I was, I was wound super tight. There was a lot of, a lot of sort of stress there. I was just running on stress hormones and, and somewhere in among all of that, it just seemed to make sense to to. It was almost like it was an external kind of um, visual uh, representation of, of how I was on the inside. Yeah, it was gotcha. just angry and just pissed off and and anxious and and you know all these sort of emotions and and so yeah, I think I was just trying to trying to look mean. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the motivation it's, was. Yeah, maybe because sort of, I could as you well. Definitely look like the the world's most badass. Yeah, doctor. you do, and it's sort of funny because your Instagram page. I'm looking at it now, and it's like you were like the side on pro- yeah. profile, yeah. but then you go to your LinkedIn, and it's like full professional. Like, professional. Yeah. He looks like a doctor. Yeah, you look like a doctor. <laughs> yeah, no, it, 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 it is funny to look at those images now, and and I, I hardly even recognise myself to be honest. It's um, it's so long ago, and 
and I feel like such a different person now. And and at the time, it didn't. I don't remember ever thinking, "Oh, this will be outrageous. I'll get cool photos." It was. It was just. It, it just sort of made sense at the time. And and um, yeah, I look yeah. back on those photos and think, "Geez, that was yeah, that was a pretty yeah. wild thing to do." Your Instagram does have some cool pics, yeah. though. Yeah. There's one that resonates uh, that you put up probably three years ago. You got cash in one hand, what I think is narcotics in the other hand, and yeah. you got your M four down at the center of your chest, and it looks bad, motherfucker. Yeah, it looks sick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's another one that's that's done the rounds, and and once again, it's at the time didn't seem it yeah. was it was just like oh let's grab a photo of this we we um we'd done two missions that day so we, we were working with the uh, DEA the drug enforcement administration doing some counter narcotic operations and and the first mission that day we had um had, we were intercepting a, a transaction of a whole bunch of wet opium and yeah. a bunch of weapons. And and so I had this successful mission in the morning, got a bloke shot on extraction that day and uh, treated him on the helicopter. Thankfully, it was just a through and through to his thigh. And so inserted on that second target. And it was actually on that second target just after that photo was taken that, that Rowan Robinson was killed. So that was that day. Um, within about an hour of that photo, Rowan got shot and and uh, we got him on a helicopter and sort of best paced to a, a surgical facility. But unfortunately, he was, he was uh, you know, really, really critically injured. And, but, yeah, that, so we were... We were intercepting with that. Uh, I think it was 10, 20 kilos, and that's that's heroin. So it was yeah. it was Afghan heroin, all packaged up, ready to go, and a whole bunch of Taliban drug money and a bunch of weapons in this marketplace. And but yeah, that was that. That's another image that's that that I look yeah. back on and, and just think, wow, that's and it's. It, I, I get that it captures people's attention and and uh, and looks cool and all the rest of it and. And uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I associate that with with what happened later that Arvo and yeah. and so it's it was a a big day. But I mean, there was a, and I guess that sort of talks to these massive highs and lows that could happen within within ten twenty minutes of each other. You know, you could be having the the, the greatest time and and doing your your missions, completing your missions, and then all of a sudden you get that radio transmission saying you know, cat A gunshot wound neck or cat A gunshot wound chest and 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 things change in a heartbeat and you go from having a great day to, to yeah. having a very bad day. Well, uh, yeah, anyway, they're super cool pictures and yeah. it's like you forecasted that Instagram was coming. Yeah, it was you, cool. But, yeah, super cool. <laughs> I, I'm like, for me now, I'm just going to go to the doctors. Like, I've got to go to the doctor next week. I'm just going to – You're not even Dan. <laughs> you're, not, you're, not, you're not even cool. <laughs> oh, yeah, would, you, would you go to that doc? I, I, I make this joke in presentations I, I put the and, and say when that photo was taken, I was a GP and that, you know, but I wouldn't take my kids to see that doctor. <laughs> so, Speaking of your kids, Dan, what do they think of dad? Uh, how, how, old are, how old are your kids? You got three, you say before? Yeah, I do. So the eldest is 14. And then eleven and eight is my right. little team, so they're all boys. Yeah, and uh, yeah, look, I'm, I mean, I think when you're a kid, you don't, your dad's just your dad, you know. Yeah. You don't, see, you don't see that same perspective, and and to to some degree, I mean, the, the, my eldest son is starting to have a bit of an appreciation of what I used to do, and and he's on on social media now and, and he's sort of his <laughs> some of his mates are on Instagram and follow me, which is all a bit awkward and, and weird to be honest, but it's a good reminder of uh, being sensible <laughs> in what I post. <laughs> but yes, I mean the, the, the younger kids don't and you know, I, I haven't spoken at any great length at all about 
yeah. a lot of the stuff. I've got a, a shed where I, I keep some memorabilia and stuff. So I mean, they they know when they've got some sense of what's gone on. But, but I mean, they th- I think they think it's far cooler that that I got to be the doc on that SAS Australia TV show <laughs> yeah. than, than, than being the doc with the real SAS. Well, we'll, we'll get to that now, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So you uh, you do your four tours uh, Afghanistan. You know, what stage do you think about uh, discharging, leaving? What's what, what was the say so after my fourth tour? So I, I'd done five straight years in special operations, which was pretty rare for a doctor to be allowed to do that. And uh, so it was a great run. So at the end of the day, I still belonged to medical corps and was still required to, as an officer with med corps and was still required as such to post around, to do promotional courses, to do senior medical officer jobs. That was the the expectation. And I was kind of allowed to just stick around SOCOM because it was a good fit at the time and, and things were were going well and I wanted to, but I had not done my promotional courses. I'd not done a bunch of stuff. I was overdue to post out basically. So I was needing to leave the the unit uh, or the command anyway. All roads led to a headquarters job, which I didn't want to do. The uh, and, and coupled to which I had I had fairly deliberately not done my promotional courses because there was always more fun shit to do. And also I knew the sooner I got promoted, the sooner I'd be out of there. So professionally, it was it, it, it was a bit of a dead end to try and stick around special operations. Personally, uh, the birth of my third son. So I, I got back from my fourth tour of Afghanistan about a week before my little man was born. And, you know, my wife, God bless her, had been raising the other two pretty much as a single mum for the the four and a half years prior to that. And uh, so it was time for for us as a family for me to spend less time away. I I was starting to really look critically at the, the risk of going overseas and and you know, the the more times you roll the dice, the the more chance it's gonna you're gonna get yourself shot or blown exactly. up, or in a helicopter crash, or you know. And so I was seeing this this stuff, and and it, it clearly registered to me that it had nothing to do with your competence as a soldier. It it was a lot of the time it was just good luck, bad luck. You know, whether your helicopter crashed or not, whether a bullet passes through your head or passes straight past your ear. You know, it's it's there's so much uh, chance there. So all of these kind of factors, and then also I was starting to burn out. I, I, I couldn't, I didn't want to admit it, but I could see that I was fried. And uh, I think some of that was evident in my, uh, you know, my, my overall attitude, but also my attitude towards the work. I was getting frustrated with the job at the SAS regiment, which was the, in my opinion, the best doctor's job in the army. You know, it was it was so much better and you had so many more liberties and you were so better equipped and doing for me, so much more professionally satisfying stuff, and yet I was still frustrated that that it wasn't enough. So there was a lot of factors that that led to it just making sense to get out. The, um, Smart yeah, Smart yeah, definitely. Well, I guess then four years in Afghanistan, high adrenaline. It's that just that adrenaline. It's a different scenario so coming back home down. and just being normal. And obviously, I suppose that leads into your your coming years of PTSD. Yeah, so it, that, that was an interesting thing, and and uh, I mean, I like to make the clarification. 
uh, here that, that I, I never, well, I never actually got a diagnosis of PTSD, but yeah. I, I like to differentiate between post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. And, you know, that disorder part, that that established pattern of, of um, sort of psychological issue that, that kicks on, I, I think we... We don't distinguish that well enough, and and I do think what I s- suffered from was post traumatic stress. There's no question, but never it got into that established pattern yep. of behaviour. Gotcha. And but yeah, that that period of time when I discharged from the army in 2014 was was when things really started to catch up with me, and it struck me as as quite odd. And this was was for me where my the the genesis of my interest in resilience as a construct came from I, I started to have all these symptoms and so for pretty much the first time ever I was having you know repeated bad dreams and intrusive thoughts and sweaty palms racing heart hypervigilance all this sort of stuff at a time when I was never safer I was at home more than ever with my family and kids and I was earning more money than ever so on paper there was all these really protective factors I was physically like largely uninjured from my service you know it wasn't like I was medically discharged or was psych discharged I left on my own volition and I had this this um qualification that translated not only well into civilian street it earned me a whole bunch of more cash in civil street so everything was positive yet i was i was heading in a negative from a mental health perspective and and so i started for me to work through that i it's i wanted to know what 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 the science said what the what the psychology of what was happening was you know what was it that was bolstering us all within the military that i'd lost why am i doing worse now despite everything technically being better and and so i started to look to the literature to start to try and codify and quantify what was happening and and that led to this well you know it it started to make sense you look at social psychological theory and and group identity social identity theory identity fusion all these things i i was so uh identity fused I, i i didn't I was so ingrained in in this idea of me being a doctor with the military that when I got out, I lost my identity, I lost my sense of purpose. Uh, I was struggling to with all of that, and and all the supportive factors that that were there within the military, all the the brotherhood, the mates, the shared experiences, yeah. the feeling of self worth, self esteem, like you're contributing to something bigger than yourself, uh, and the professional satisfaction, like you're you are developing professionally and personally in that role, all, all of that was stripped away, and so. I started to realise, well, this makes sense why I, I feel the way I do in discharge. And, and you know, I, I don't know how you guys experienced it, but I think any discharging veteran, police officer, ambulance officer, people who have been part of a tight-knit, high-consequence group, when you get out of that, you feel like shit. Yeah, and that's, that's not necessarily post-traumatic stress. That's just you, you kind of need to redefine who you are. Uh, but then superimposed on that, I was no question that some of the stuff I hadn't processed at that point when I lost all those factors, lost my resilience, the stress caught up with me, started to get the symptoms. And so it was sort of this perfect storm. Uh, but but then by by breaking it all down, codifying it, quantifying it, I, I worked out for me the, the, the roadmap back to a good space as a civilian. And, and that then kind of turned into this Resilient Shield project. Yeah, gotcha. And that's yeah. one of your sort of journal or a book, that one? Yeah, it's 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 both. So yeah. it's um we've we've written a book. Uh, so that's myself and my brother uh, Ben, and oh, cool. then a, another bloke by the name of Tim Curtis, who was a squadron commander with the SAS regiment. Uh, and so the three of us have 
uh, in cahoots with the Resilient Shield as a company and wrote the book together. And then, uh, yeah, exactly as you, you, you just said, Shane, the, the, we've got a journal as well, the Resilience Journal, which just helps you kind of operationalise the content of the Resilient Shield model, uh, put it into practice and move towards your goals. Yeah, gotcha. And um, the other books you've got as well is uh, The Average 70 Kilo Dickhead, (laughs) (laughs) which is... It's a pretty funny title, actually. The title's awesome. Motivational Lessons from an Ex-Army Special Forces. Yeah. Yes. So that one was... When when I got out of the Army, actually, my interest in writing came back to when I got home from that that second tour where we'd lost the guys and I was a bit wound up and fried. And and when I did all my post-deployment psych briefs, the, the psych that saw me for that said, hey, have you thought about writing down in detail some of these events? It might help you process things and make sense of it. And, and so I went away and did that and found it hugely cathartic and and then got, got into the habit of writing. And so I just started started writing. I you know wrote, wrote about these events and then various other things. And so when I got out and started to process these these thoughts and work work out what was going to be the way forward for me. I started to blog a little bit, and and you know I'd, I'd never had social media as a as a army bloke. It was kind of frowned upon to have social media profiles. So that was the first time in my life I'd set up social media accounts. Started to, to blog a little bit and post a little bit, and and started to just get some so you know some interaction with other people around the world that was suffering from similar sort of situations: veterans, cops, fireys, ambos, and and so. Some of what I had to say started to resonate a little bit, and I was getting you know good good interaction, and and so the average seventy kilo dickhead was was just a it was a couple of things, but and the story behind that uh, title is is in the first chapter of the book. It comes from an interaction I had uh, in my early twenties, but um, the it was just grabbing some of this and elaborating a little bit on some of my blogs and and whatever else and just chucking it in a book it, it was stepping through the motions of writing a book and self-publishing and and recording the audio for an audio book so it was sort of as much as anything it was just a, a bit of a test run as to what that looked like and seeing if I could do all of that and and then you know it, it ended up um, kind of get, getting a decent following which was really uh, gratifying actually it was yeah. great. Yeah right. Yeah, I'm I'm keen to read all all these books. And obviously, you got right. your your other book as well is the arterial tourniquets for police officers and first responders. Yeah, so that was so that was we put that out through a, a company called TACMED Australia, yep. which I I co-own and work as the medical director for. And so that was founded by a bloke called Jeremy Holder, who's actually a Medal of Gallantry winner. He was a commando medic and Jez just got out of two commando or four RAR just as I got in. So he was, he posted out the year at the end of the year before I posted in the next year. And, and so I didn't know Jez in uniform, but I, I knew, you know, I knew who he was and he'd won an MG for, for, um, there was a, like a whole bunch of people shot up in an ambush. He yeah. was in the field in Afghanistan and, and he, he basically exposed himself to a whole bunch of gunfire to get around and patch everyone up and everyone lived and okay. uh, really humble guy, you know, he'll, He'll never tell you that story, but but um, he got out and and founded this company in recognition of the fact that at that point we didn't have the medical kit we needed to function at our you know optimal in the field in Afghanistan. So we would get over to Afghanistan, we'd beg, borrow, and steal from the Yanks to get what we needed to to try and save our mates in the field. And and so Jez saw this opportunity to start a company, bring this stuff in 
uh, from around the world, these things like arterial tourniquets. I mean, yeah. it's it's second nature stuff for military and law enforcement mm. now, but at the time it wasn't. Uh, the, the quick clot, hemostatic type dressings, a couple of other bits and pieces. And so he would bring them in and go through the, the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods and Administration process of getting them certified for use and sale in Australia. And so I started this company and and um, he he just chipped away at this thing and built it. And and when I got out of the army, I'd, I'd started a, I'd been doing some training for a couple of government groups and and um, and I, I started my own private uh, tactical medical training company to continue to train some of these elements. And at around that time, Jeremy was starting, Jez was starting to look at, at doing a bit more training through TACMED and, and the two kind of came together. So my company rolled into TACMED and I became a co-owner and a, another ex-two commando medic, uh, Adam Cantrick, brought in at the same time. So, yeah, so very, once again, very long story to come back around to, but that arterial tourniquet uh, ebook was was just something that we put out uh, actually a few few years ago now, but to raise a bit more civilian awareness about the utility of arterial tourniquets. Yeah, yeah, and, and very um, interesting. It's funny now because I only just did my senior first aid the other day, a couple of weeks ago. They're just starting to teach use of I wouldn't say the use of tourniquets, but the knowledge of tourniquets that they they well, are the out there. The purpose of them, the purpose of yeah. them, what they're used okay. for. Because you know, a couple of years ago. The civilian side of things, they didn't want a bar of it. As you know, being a doctor, it's probably the most critical piece of equipment out in the battlefield. Look, it is. And I, I think the thing that uh, took me years to understand, because I, you know, like you you were just implying, like it, we'd sort of come back and we'd be we'd be screaming at anyone that would listen in the civilian sector, you need arterial tourniquets. These things save lives, you know. But what the disconnect there was that, yes, unquestionably, for for battlefield injuries, for blasts, traumatic amputations, high-velocity gunshot wounds that, that go through arteries, yeah, absolutely, pre-hospital, whack a tourniquet on, you'll save a life uh, if it can be saved. The And it, it took me a long time to to understand why the civilian uh, paramedi- uh, paramedical world wasn't embracing them. And, and I had the opportunity to interact with some of the people that sit on the board who, who change policies and procedures for the Australian Resuscitation Council. And it was only through interacting with them that I came to understand that what they need is a certain level of evidence, so definitive proof that an intervention or a medicine or a technique is life-saving in the context that it's going to be used in. And so while we were getting all this fantastic evidence in the, on the battlefield, field, that wasn't evidence for civilian use, you know. So they could look at it and say, hey, yeah, this these things work, Let's we need to think about them. But for them to change their guidelines to, say, whack an arterial tourniquet on every arterial bleed, they need the evidence in the civilian sector. Yeah, and so it's a, it's a slow-moving beast. It'll get but there. certainly the, the resuscitation, Australian Resuscitation Council has now slowly but surely moved their their protocols to to allow the use of arterial tourniquets if you you know if you're not winning with a pressure dressing which is different to military we'd put it on first we wouldn't even bother pressure dressing but at least it's there and it's it's um you know sanctioned and allowed on those protocols and and also to recognize that a life-threatening bleed is the highest priority you know for the longest time the civilian sector 
would go airway, breathing, circulation. So by the time you got technically to the life-threatening bleed, you would have established an airway, checked the breathing, all the while they're pumping out litres of blood. So, you know, it's it's um, I, I do see it from the civilian perspective, but it's great to see some of these lessons learned on the battlefield being applied yeah. in the civilian realm because we know they work in certain contexts. Yeah, it's cool, isn't it? It is cool. Yeah. Getting there. Um, uh, SAS. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the I've, I've said this to yeah. Matt. I said, yeah. I want to ask him about We saw it. a picture with you and uh, Manu. Did he cook you a <laughs> Manu? Manu. Oh, yeah. Manu. 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 Yeah, he is a magic human being. Just a lovely bloke, you know. He, uh, and it was disappointing to see him bail out when he did. I, um, I, I, was, I thought he had a fair bit more left in him. But, yeah. Um, yeah, lovely bloke. No, he didn't cook for us. Actually, when he exited, so when, <laughs> when they come off the course, we, we do a, a medical exit screen. So we get them and we get them in the med hut. And, and that's the first time where they get treated nicely, you know, all of a sudden they're <laughs> off the course and you're not yelling at them. I'm not yeah. there to be a to be a, a, a DS. Yeah. And so had Manu and, and you know, they they feed them not much at all and it's it's not that palatable, the, the food. And, and so I went and got him some food from a – from our little hut, and it sort of felt a bit funny. I'm giving this, you know, this, this <laughs> elite chef this sort of hot box full of whatever. And but no, he was he was great. He loved it, and you know, made a big deal. How was the, it? No, sorry, what was he going to say? How was the show itself? Uh, working with Ann, Ollie, Billy, and uh, Jason. Good. It's great. You know, it's it's really a whole bunch of fun. It's it's surprisingly hard work. Like they're yeah. they're long, long days, and and um, and it, it, I mean, it's it's no different with the the military selection courses to run one of those things is a massive logistical effort and, and oftentimes the DS is sleeping less than the, the candidates. And and so, I mean, it, it's around the clock, uh, very busy, very intense, but it's I, I'm, I'm impressed by it. I really am. Yeah. I didn't know what to think before I turned up the first time and, and you, you see what goes to air on TV and, and I'd never had anything to do with the film and TV industry prior to that, but it is unbelievable what goes into setting that whole thing yeah, up in production. terms of, you know, the sets themselves are just phenomenal. You know, yeah. they're there for months and months at a time. They're in the middle of bloody nowhere, so they have to get generators and get all the electricity up and everything, and and then everything that that goes with recording a million different cameras twenty four seven, all the sound and all that sort of stuff. So it's like this little mini city that gets set up, and and then all the support to that in terms of you know things like showers, ablutions, uh, food, uh, all that kind of business. So the catering and everything, and so it's an amazing beast to be involved yeah. in. Uh, just. Film and TV in general was my experience, but then the the you know the, the DS they're great guys. They're, you see a side of them on TV, and obviously there's lots of drama and 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 it's all for the camera, thing. yeah, yeah, spot yeah. on. But but they're all just normal you know, normal ex, dudes, ex military dudes. Yeah, yeah they, they, <laughs> they they love a good laugh, and and you can have a you can have a bit of fun with them. But uh, they know when to switch it on and and get into their DS mode. Yeah. But no, they're all they're all really lovely people. Uh, to be honest, and, and so yeah, I had some some good ongoing interaction with um, with those blokes, and and the in terms of the actual course itself, you know, I was a bit dubious going into it. How how hard do they actually thrash these people? But it, <laughs> it, it is the it is the real deal. They, they have a hellish time, yeah. <laughs> absolutely hellish time. And and the thing I've, I've mentioned this uh, before, talking to, to people on podcasts, but the the thing is that. These people are coming from this background that is so foreign in terms of because, you know, you hear this, oh, well, I'm sure it's nothing like 
SAS selection. Well, yeah, of course not. They're not. They're not. They're, there is no unit that these people yeah. go into yeah. when they're not military people. But when you boil it down to the essence, it is exactly the same. It is people that are being put under such an intense amount of stress. They're being ground down physically and psychologically to get them to a point where every fibre of their being would be screaming at them to quit and see who can keep going. And that's the same, whether it's a military or a police special unit course uh, or this, this course, it's exactly the same. And you get this same person that just digs their heels in and is just gritty and will not quit. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's, it's yeah, to me, that's fantastic. And to see that packaged in, you know, some of these, the, the female recruits uh, and the, the season that's coming up, it, it, it'll blow your mind. Some of the people that, that's, you know, it just sort of grind away and get close to or to the end. Uh, at the start of the course, you'd look at them and you'd go, no way, they won't last two days. Yeah, right. So, yeah, it's always fantastic, these little surprise packages. Are you on this prove- this season coming up? Yeah, yeah. So I was the doc. Yeah, I was the doc for the one that I think that they've started to advertise it now. I don't know yeah. when it goes to where. I think it goes there next week after the tennis or something. Yeah. 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 Oh, true, does yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's soon. Yeah, it's it's close. Um, and you're also a uh, car enthusiast as well. You have a Lamborghini Uraco. Is that it? Uh, yeah, Uraco. Yes. Yes, Almost. I do. Yeah, I'm, I'm a <laughs> fanatic. But I, I get this from my old man and my brother got it as well to a slightly lesser degree. He's got a, a 66 Mustang. But, yes. um, yeah, I've, I've fallen into the, the, uh, the love of – European cars and, and particularly the old Italian stuff. So, yeah, love my cars. Oh, I used to own a 72 Challenger with a 440. It was, oh, it was a fucking mate, beast. I bet you still had that beast. Yeah, it was fucking Matt, Matt saw it. It was nice. It was, yeah, a it was nice car. fucking bright purple. It was just loud as fuck, and I used to just be an absolute oh. menace in it. <laughs> yeah, I bet it was thirsty too. Oh, it was, yeah. 7, 7.2 <laughs> litre. She'd she, she love you. That's a big dog. Big dog. <laughs> Yeah, right. So we've been talking for a good hour and 20 minutes and it's been absolutely hectic. This is awesome. this has been super cool just to, you know, again just shoot the shit. Shoot the shit. Yeah. You, you know, you're you're you were a doctor, you actually let's just start from the start, you were a dropout pretty much. Hospital dropout. <laughs> yeah. Then you got your degree, then you, then you got a scholarship to become a doctor. Not only be a doctor in the Australian army. We've all spent our time in the yeah. defense force and been to the RAP plenty of times and <laughs> just seen the seeing the doctors in there just going yeah right just that was my only thought of a doctor like that's what i thought doctors did in the army that was it but you're out in the battlefield you know copping rounds over your head not only that (laughs) he actually uh, completed uh, selection as well yeah yeah it's fucking huge yeah it's huge feats which is absolutely mental like so it's in yeah this has been super cool for for, yeah for our guests we've Generally, have two final questions, and yeah. you've, you know, I'm sure your books. The speak last a lot. hour speaks to this first question. Yeah, he <laughs> does. It just answered everything. Uh, our first question is, you know, what advice can you give to people? You know, especially the younger generation these days. Obviously, we're going through this full COVID. That's another podcast. It's crazy. Uh, you know, what advice can you give? You know, anyone that's, you know, regardless if from the military, drawn the police or whatever, you know, to complete their goals and take to the next level and complete, you know, whatever they're going to be doing. What, what advice can you Yeah, look, I, I think it, this was some of the purpose of that Average 70 Kilo project was was just to try and grab a hold of some of this stuff and and, and get it out of it. But, I mean, the, probably the overarching uh, advice I'd give is don't die wondering. You know, like give it a go. Get out yeah. there and have a go. And I think the the I, I like to, to engage particularly with young people and, and it comes – 
actually, because you know I'm, I'm a short bloke. I'm 170, 35 centimeters, and, <laughs> and and I am most of the time I hover around 70 kilos. Hence, average 70 kilo dickhead. And and so you know I'm not a I'm not a, a physically impressive specimen at all. And it's not getting any not getting any better with age. And and you know as we spoke about, I, I was not. You know, I was smart enough to get through school, and then when I wanted to, to when I engaged in my studies, uh, you know, I, I had enough enough uh, sort of mental ability to be able to to do well at uni. But I'm, I'm not, I'm by no means a genius. And and the the point here being that if you've got the bare basic set of, of tools in terms of physical and, and mental, then you can achieve an incredible amount of stuff in life. And and I reflect back, and I think. You know that's that's been a wild ride. That's pretty crazy. That that and it's it's humbling when you have it sort of said back to you. Uh, you know, you've done this, 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 and this, and from the outside, yeah, that might look impressive. But but that's that's twenty five years of just continuing to chip away at stuff. And and what people don't see is that the longer list of things that I've I've failed at over the years. Like there's plenty of stuff I suck at, and uh, and there's been times where like when I when I didn't crack it as a triathlete, I've started uni courses that I've dropped out of because I was no good at it and it just didn't resonate. And you know the, the list goes on. I've I've got some some business <laughs> ventures, uh, some that have failed and, and bombed out, others that I refuse to accept are failing. And and so I mean, the, but it, it's it's it, for me it's about having a go it's about not looking back at any period of my life and thinking i wonder if i could have if i just tried and so the i mean that that the cliched advice of it's not the critic who counts i love you know that whole uh speech by theodore roosevelt that starts with that line uh the man in the arena is i think hugely motivational but but um it's it, it if there's something that you truly feel you're passionate about and you're destined to do, then my advice would be, you know, get out there and start making a plan and a goal and grind away towards it. It's not going to be easy. I think social media leads us to believe that these unbelievable feats, you know, you see one minute snapshots of excellence, but what you don't see is the, that sort of 10,000 hours, if you like, that exactly. goes into mastery. And that's the hard work you've got to do. Like I, I often get, uh, hit up on social media or emails saying, oh, I'd love to be a doctor with special operations. You know, what do I have to do? And it's like, well, what you have to do is map out the next 15 years of your life. Here's everything you're going to sacrifice. Here's what it looks like. And and that's the reality. It's not, nothing's, nothing worth doing is easy. But um, but that said, I, I am 100% convinced that for, for the average person out there, you can achieve remarkable things if you are willing to, to set the goal to sacrifice and grind away at it year in, year out. Exactly. Yeah. Very, very well put. That was very well that put. Was very well and it, put. Yeah. Sorry, you know, pretty long winded. Yeah. <laughs> that was good though. Um, and the second question: uh, What is installed for the future, Dan Proc? You know, let's look fifteen years as well. So you own a automotive business. Yep. Um, do you want to get that going? So Delta Automotive Industries. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So Delta is um, uh-huh. is a real issue of contention with my long suffering wife. God bless her. <laughs> but, um, but, so yeah, that's uh, that's a very long story. I think we need to have a, another oh. podcast session <laughs> yeah. okay. how that came about. But um, uh, I, it sounds grandiose. I, I own a car company, and we're building a, a prototype sports car. We've yeah. Um, yeah, we've right. got a registration for low volume production of a, awesome. um, a sports car, and so we're about eighty percent through the development of the prototype. Uh, in CAD, so so we um, we're about eighty percent through the, the the computer files that will then allow us to physically build the car that yep. with the intent of uh, low low volume manufacture for road use. Uh, right. So it's sort of 
just, you know, just going to delve down the car track for a minute. What sort of engine? Are you, what, what engine? Uh, so the prototypes got an LS3, so oh, a slightly yes. tuned LS3, yeah, about, yeah, about 600 horses. It, it'll weigh just on a ton. Yeah. Um, mid-engine, rear-wheel drive, two-seater yeah. thing. So it's it's very similar in proportion and handling characteristics to a Lamborghini Diablo yep. is um, is about the, where it's going to be in terms of size, weight distribution, yep. and uh, and a lot of its um, its exciting. sort of performance. It is nice. because yeah, it's going to be a production car essentially. What is it? It'll What's be low volume production. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's schemes whereby if you want to go a full production car, you need to crash test. You need to have things yeah. like ABS. Yeah. You need to have airbags, yeah. traction control, no, traction all this control sort of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and I mean, this is the whole. Uh, what, what I want to try and create is is an old school manual, no driver assist. You know, just yeah. an old just school an engine and a steering wheel. Yeah, 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 exactly. Which is probably going to be a bit of a death trap in the wrong hands. But, but um, anyway, so Should yeah, that's fun. Delta. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's one one project. <laughs> I've got another. Another while we're on the, the topic of odd companies, I've got I've got another company that I co-own with a, a, actually a, a copper a, from Queensland called uh, Coffee Cannon, and so we're about to go into our first production run of a thing called the Pod Pistol, which is a, a magazine-fed bolt-operated coffee pod dispenser. Jesus Christ! And at the US market, so <laughs> that'll that's, be, a, that's another side project. Yeah, that'll be banned uh, in New South Wales, mate. No chance in New South Wales. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of going to the US at this point. Oh, yeah. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. So there, there was actually. It was quite interesting looking into the replica firearm legislation. Oh, it's a joke, isn't it? It's a joke. But um, so, yeah, there's this copy cannon. I'm, I'm plugged in with a, a couple of guys in a company called Guardian that does this occupational violence training for paramedics and, uh, you know, Resilient Shield with Ben and Tim. We, we've um, we've got a government research grant and we're capturing data and we're about to publish our first um, study in a peer-reviewed journal on the Resilient Shield model. And so that's that's been great. We're engaging in a lot of areas there. Uh, the TACMED Australia space is 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 fantastic. I mean, that's been a great crew to engage with, and we've been able to get a bunch of ex-military people into that, ex-special operations guys that we worked with, medics, are now working with us there. So sort of rebuilding this community, uh, which is veteran-based in, in TACMED. So that's yeah. really exciting. Yeah, So and, and we, we, we co-own a virtual reality company through TACMED uh, that's making tactical medical VR Jesus programs, Christ. these kind of things, and so yeah. So there's, and then TACMED's got that um, pre the the medical services piece, which is what we use to support things like SAS Australia, and 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 then when I'm not doing any of that, I, I work in a little emergency department in a little regional town just out of Adelaide. So right, okay. I kind of fill in the gaps in my schedule with that. Uh, so you're a very yeah, big, that's, very busy that's, man, and, Dan. And yeah. then, Trying to raise three kids. Is, yeah, is that's, the, the, that's the hardest thing. <laughs> at, yeah, at the core of, of uh, yeah. So yeah. no, that's that's what the the, the future holds. So Holy it's all uh, very exciting at this point. What about uh, prime minister? Like, what I about think, a, I think you should go for it. Go for it. Politician. No, yeah, You'd be great. No, You'd be no, great. No, I, I think. You know, I've, I've sort of, I, I've did in in the years coming out of the the army. I did a couple of medical management roles. So I, I did a did a master of business administration, an MBA when I got out of the army, and then I I did this um, 
uh, this course called the Associate Fellowship of the College of Medical Administrators. So learning to run medical elements and I helped run a little hospital for a while and then I ran a, a state, the South Australian Prison Health Service. So yep. I was the medical director uh, for that and and that was enough of an insight into the yeah. sort of leadership roles and, and getting a bit of a glimpse at the politics to know that that yeah. is uh, yeah. Never- uh, yeah, but, awesome, mate. Well, this is uh, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm pumped. This is this has been <laughs> this has been awesome, mate. Like Pretty you're cool. uh, you're an inspiration, really. Oh, uh, thank you. You know, that. definitely. No. You know, we've got a, a good reach of listeners uh, throughout the world. We had a look yesterday on our list, and there's one so, in Iraq, two in Iran. <laughs> yeah, there's, um, we got Israelis, and yeah, it's this crazy, is weird. crazy listeners. So this is going to get out to all those people. And hopefully, yeah. it gets out to you know, reach out to someone that you know needs that boost, and I don't know, maybe wants to become a doctor and. Start a sports car yeah. company and sports, make your own car and, and drive be, it on the street. And be handsome. Um, mate, if people want to get in contact with you, they find you on uh, LinkedIn, obviously uh, social media. Yeah, link, LinkedIn and Instagram are probably the easiest ways to get a hold of me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. And uh, that's uh, Dan Pronk, isn't it? At Dan yep. Pronk. Um, yeah. Well, uh, the books, the books. Where can they find your books? We've lost him. We're almost there. Oh, we got right, you. We got him. Yep, sorry, I don't know what happened there. No, Just you're right. Uh, your books, uh, where can they find your books? So uh, resilientshield.com is our website for ResShield, and you can get the book through there if you want to and the journal through there, or the Resilient Shield is is in all the bookshops in Australia, uh, internationally. It's it's only available in audio book and ebook, but it's on Amazon, it's on Audible, and uh, you can get it through there. Average 70 kilo dickhead is available. <laughs> it's hard to say that without laughing. Even even me, but um, that, that, that's available through Amazon as well, internationally on audiobook awesome. and, and hard copy. Uh, so yeah, that's that's the the place to go for those. Yeah, oh, yeah. cool. Uh, awesome. One final one. Uh, next time yep. you're on the SAS show, can you yeah. grow that mohawk back? Yeah, that'd be good. Oh, it was discussed. Yeah, was it? it was discussed. Yeah, so I, I was because you know it. it it, when it became clear it was an on-camera role, there was discussion around what I'd look like for the role and I, I was asked to grow a, a decent beard and have a bit of hair. They didn't want me looking clean cut, you yeah. know, for, for that role. And and then it was, like, well, what do you wear? You don't want to look like DS. You don't look, want to look like recruits. And so multicams was just what it ended up being. And But, yeah, there was talk of of, of going the mohawk again. And Oof, yeah. I don't know if it got vetoed or it just didn't get pursued. But, um, yeah, all right, I'll... Um, if there's, an, the yeah, if there's an ex, just do it. Just do it. I'll reinvigorate. Yeah, because what are the chances of being able to have a mohawk again in a? Yeah, yeah you might be right. I think oh, shit, you only live once. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Don't die wondering. <laughs> Don't die wondering. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. All right, mate. Uh, again, appreciate you coming on and giving uh, giving us your time. And uh, mate, it's just been insightful and yeah, awesome. Very good. I love. I absolutely love this one. Awesome. Speechless. I'm well, a, I'm speechless. It's a real pleasure. Thank you guys for having me, and and thanks for what you're doing here spreading the word and thank you both for your service. No worries, mate. We'll, no worries. we'll, uh, we'll tag you in on all the Instagram and stuff and, uh, yeah, we'll let you know when this one goes live. But I reckon this one, I was even trying to get this one dropped for tomorrow. Straight day. Right. It is right a straight day. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for your service, Dan, and thank you for your time this afternoon. Right. Thanks, mate. Good on you. Matt, that was incredible. Mate. <sighs> Can hold a conversation. Yeah. Mate, he was a pro. He was uh, just – you know, he's not your typical doctor. You know, if you walk into his, his G, GP, you walk into your GP. You know, um, yeah. even you know, whilst we're in the army, you know, walked into the RAP. Yeah, 
Yeah. Regimental and so on his size and weight says, yeah, I, I did SS selection and I went out field with SAS. You're uh, like, yeah, mate, whatever. Whatever. Whatever's Trev. <laughs> and then he shows you the photo with the brick of heroin and this brick of cash <laughs> in his hand with the M4 down his chest. Yeah. It's just um, not your typical doctor. No. It, like he, you know. But coming from his school, he, he dropped out of year, year 11. Well, that's that's the thing. Like, yeah, he can be a complete dropout and then become yeah. a doctor. Yeah. Like, you know, like, like as we spoke about during the podcast, you know, basically every, you know, I'm sure there would have been a teacher like, you'll be the, you're the biggest piece of shit. You'll never yeah. be. And we, we all copped. I yeah. got it. I, you know, we, we all did, mate. I got it. Yeah. It worked. Because it, maybe they do it on purpose just to, yeah. it's like a reverse psychology. Do you know what's funny? A bit of a side story. Me and my mate Jake Bradstreet joined the Navy Army, respectively, and we were the biggest rat bags at school. There was this kid, I'm not going to name him, but he went to join the Air Force and he said he was too immature to join. And Jake <laughs> and I were just cracking up laughing anyway. But there you go. And he was, he was a grade A student. Yeah. Smart, smart as fuck as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. But Dan's story, like uh, Dr. Dan, Dr. Dreamy. Dr. Dan MD. Dr. Dreamy. Dr. No? He's, he's dreamy a little bit. He's, he's quite a good looking fella. He's, um, he's very humbled in what he's accomplished in life as well. Oh, 100%. And he can, even when I said, well, you said you weren't going to do triathlons because you're already broken in your mind going, fuck this. Then he was 30. So he was my age when he went and did selection. Yeah. Which I think is pretty amazing. Like, imagine someone 30 yeah, it's years pretty old. Cool. Like, fucking hell, I could not think it's of myself It's pretty cool. Doing it. And, um, you know, he spoke about his, uh, you know, undiagnosed PTSD. You know, more PTS, uh, post-traumatic stress. Obviously, during yeah. his time within the SAS and uh, 2 Commando um, in Afghanistan, you know. Good he, reason. They lost a lot of guys over that, you know, yeah. four four rotations that he was on. He was involved with a lot of those, uh, you know, casualties as well, you know, yeah. obviously uh, getting the bodies out, et cetera. And uh, I, I couldn't imagine how many of his soldiers that he you he, know patched up. Exactly, you know, yeah. Put a couple of Band-Aids on. More, and not, more, not to more mention when he said he – Got shot and he hit about about a foot above his head. Yeah, first. And, at, and at the time he was laughing, yeah. but you think back now, I'm sh- well, I, I can't speak on anyone else's behalf, but he's probably thinking, "Fuck, you know, that was like my ticket." Well, exactly, yeah. exactly. And obviously at that stage too, he's got his family back at home. Yes, his wife yeah, bringing yeah. up the two kids, and then on his fourth deployment, that's when he has his uh, the, the, um, third. the third kid as well. Yeah. You know, just before he got home. Um, the backbone of any soldier is their partner back home. I reckon. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. Well, they just do an amazing job. Unless they cheat on you. <laughs> and they're not amazing Which job. happens all the time. <laughs> Sorry for the guys out there. <laughs> but no, he's uh, – and he's not going down fighting as a sense. He's not going to give up now. Like he's got that um, – the coffee, he's got the car he's trying to build – um, yeah, he's still being which is a which is cool, like the car. Like, that's, that's fucking sick. You, you look at him, he's like Tesla. He's there. <laughs> you look at him again. You think this can't start in a car company. You know? <laughs> yeah, and you go to his gram. He's he loves his car. Yeah, and still a doctor, still yep. doing uh, working at an emergency ward yeah. somewhere in again, Adelaide. Adelaide yeah, and, um, and still being a father. And still, yeah, still being a father, and, and he's know, bloody cool as an example. He's got the four books out, so if you want to uh, get out and check his books out, Amazon, Amazon. Uh, bookstores, you name it, just type in is Dan it, Pronk there, books. There's no bookstores like uh, online bookstores. Yeah, sorry, online. But I mean, if you just type Dan Pronk Google, then go to books at the top of the screen or Comfy's books. Yep. So he by. has the Resilience Shield, yep. uh, the Resilience Journal, the Average Seventy Kilo Dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best title. It's a cool title. And uh, arterial uh, tourniquets, um, more of a, a medical side of things. Oh, yeah. Talking about if you're into that sort of stuff. Tourniquets. No. And uh, again, if you want to find him, just head on to his uh, Instagram, uh, Dan Pronk. Easily. I'm pretty sure. You'll, 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 you'll find yeah, Just type in Dan Pronk and look for the look, dude. Look for the Mo Walker. Look for the, mo- the, the, the most badass looking doctor. 
Like if if I walked into a doctor, into a GP, and he was sitting there, I'd be like, "Who the fuck are you?" I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna get some free oxy right now. <laughs> <laughs> he's um he's he's not what you think. No, definitely not. Super cool, super cool. And um, LinkedIn. Otherwise, you can head, yeah head to head to LinkedIn. Uh, obviously, uh, Dan Bronk, uh, doctor. Uh, I'm probably it might just Google his name. Yeah, yeah. come up all his all his links. But and there's uh, plenty of other podcasts with him on. But listen to ours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, if you want to find uh, you know any of our podcasts, this one and obviously the previous ones, just head to uh, zero dot limits dot podcast on uh, Instagram and Facebook. Correct. Or head to Apple, Spotify, Spotify any. There's heaps of them. Out Stitcher, there. Audible, Podbean, Podbean, Podbean. Podbean. So we looked on the stats. Somebody listened to us through his Xbox. Yep. Someone, someone listened to us. Whoever you are, mate. Where we 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 know that you listen yeah. to us on an Xbox. You're a legend. And there's a bloke in Iran, Iraq. Yep. And if it? you're listening to, don't kill us. That, that's it. And <laughs> we're still waiting for a North Korean person to listen to us. But I think your your country's blocked from getting any <laughs> <our> stuff. <laughs> Kim Jong, if you're listening, do you pee or poo? <laughs> oh, shitty walk. <laughs> All right, guys. That's it for this uh, one. We'll catch you on the next one. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Catches. Wait, wait, wait. Now, quickly, just before you go, I want to tell you about Three Zeros Coffee. As you know, I like my coffee how I like my men, long and black. <laughs> However, lately, I've moved into the cold brews. I'm loving it, obviously, because the weather here in Australia at the moment is quite hot. So what I've been doing is using the seasoned campaigner pour-over filter bags, literally rip open the packet, put the filter bag over my coffee mug, a few ice cubes, pour in some hot water, let it cool down, Add a sugar or two just to make it sweet, and I fucking love them. Honestly, you get the kick that you need out of the caffeine, and the taste is great. So if you want to get yourself a supply of coffee, head over to 30scoffee.com.au. From there, you can choose whatever you want. You've got the beans, you've got the pour-over filter bags, you've got some merchandise, and just to let you know that a percentage of their sales is forwarded to organizations that support first responders. So... While you're getting your coffee, you're doing a good deed by getting some of this money to the first responders and where it needs to go. While you're there, don't forget to use the discount code 3ZLIMITS. Now, look in our bio, you see that discount code, use it, get your discounts. So again, jump onto 30scoffee.com.au and grab yourself a supply.